Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. My guest today is a good friend of mine that I had engaged a lot when I was on the radio on a daily program. And we are reconnecting now on podcast. And if it is up to me and him, we are committing to talk geopolitics at least once a month, if not once or twice a month. He is Kofi Kwaku, who is the Africa Analyst and a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre of Africa-China at the University of Johannesburg. Not all South Africans do not know how to place South Africa within the broader geopolitical contestations around the continent and the world. But if we are honest, we are often as South Africans, and I know I'm generalising, but I think it's a fair generalisation, we can be rather parochial. We often take very little notice of what happens north of the Limpopo. And if we do care about the world, we normally mean the global north, and in particular, a couple of old colonial superpowers or dominant superpowers currently, like Great Britain or the USA. And yet, a recent piece written by Coffey reminds us of the complex footprints that are deep, and still with us, of the forays into misadventures on the continent by the French, for example, and that even if you take Britain and the USA out of the picture, there are interesting dynamics between France and Russia, not to mention China, which perhaps we'll leave as a self-standing topic for a next episode, that is worth understanding because the implications for us on the African continent. So this is really going to be a slow entry into understanding those geopolitical tensions between France and Russia and the backdrop to these conversations between me and him, I think will always be what are the implications for Africa. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Coffee, thank you so much for coming on the Times Live platform. Thank you so much for inviting me on such a great platform. And as you know, I'm a fan of your work. I must put it on, up front, <laughs> so I'm a bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love your your mind, and I love your work too, as you as you as you know very well. Thank you very much, and I love the word you've used uh, as footprint in football. Yeah, and I want to start. I really want to start there because there was in this piece of yours published on iol.co.za. Along the way, you reference the fact that, um, and I'm trying to find it verbatim, but the essence of the thought was almost parenthetical, that um, France has got really complicated 
relationships with the continent. Um, quote, its relationship with its former colonies has not changed much and is out of step with its economic independence. Worse, its diplomatic cognitive dissonance continues to deepen the miseries of Africa. Now, you're not a guy given to exaggeration and adjectives that are there just to titillate. You are analytical. Can you pause over those diagnostic descriptions of France? They're quite, I mean, you know, they're not exactly flattering. Yes. I mean, um, as you know, I am a one of those, the products of French colonialism. I say that all the time because my education in what's today called Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, has shaped me one way or another, thinking, the culture, and so forth. And as I grew and matured, I've noticed some, you know, a few things that really are uncomfortable. That if you were to do, take a sort of a, even slight audit of French colonialism, much as we don't like the term colonialism, but I mean, there, there are a few things that are worth, and yeah, it's hard to say, but if I'm alive and it, I've been able to survive in the world is because uh, the language, or what usually people call lingua franca, has helped me to, you know, navigate through the world and being able to find ways to meet my uh, Maslow hierarchy of needs, one or another. But clearly, when you look at, if you take a deep also analysis of this, most French colonies or former French colonies haven't done quite well. They haven't been able to come out of this poverty, you know, spectrum where they've been muddling in through the, you know, during colonization and then post-colony. And that you can see it in Central Africa, West Africa, with even Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, Mali, where there's a now a mess now, Burkina Faso, Guinea. I mean, the list goes on all the way to the Central African Republic. And not only that, you can also look at Madagascar next to us here in South Africa. And the key really binding element there that link those miseries is that history with France that is still locked into most of these countries, uh, both on the economies, uh, most French, most uh, African former colonies that still work with France do are uh, still sort of overwhelmingly powered by French companies, for example. So there's very little to really focus on there. That's on the economy. There's a lot more if you took the Frank CFA which is a colonial, um, you know, uh, monetary system that binds them with France. There's very little room there for them to wiggle. That's on the economy side, but on the military side, France has military bases across the board in most of these places. And then third, uh, culturally, um, most of these uh, countries still have France, uh, French as an official language, not only official language but also the official language and the business language. And that, in short, this is how I can uh, summarize for you. So those miseries are still there. And for some reasons, when you when people talk about it, they get a sort of pushback, hard pushback, and say, wait a minute, you know, uh, colonization is finished, people are now independent, 
and want uh, you know uh, uh, African leaders are doing a terrible job at managing their countries, rightly so, but most of them are there on the goodwill of friends, and that's one of the reasons I use that sentence. You say this. That's that's fantastic, and I want to deep dive into each of those three themes: the economic, mm-hmm. the military, and the cultural. And you have anticipated the devil's advocate question. People will say decolonization happened in the middle of the last century slowly across the continent. The original sin and sinners were the colonial powers. And intergenerationally, that has made it hard for Africa as a region to become economically self-sufficient and to flourish. But... They may insist and say, and you know that there's a version of this debate going on in South Africa already, even yes. as the, you know, even though we 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 had political emancipation last out of all the, the countries in the region, and people ask, at what point do you apportion blame to nascent democratic governments after colonialism? that prey on their own people like the French did and in the work of many thinkers like Franz Fanon, we have the warnings to look out for the red flags of neo-colonial behavior where just like the French, you will have a current government, whether it be in Mali and Senegal, that also steals from the locals and have their tentacles reach into the natural resources, a proboscis that extracts it for the gain of the new political elite. And the one thing that is impossible to be mathematical about, but that I thought was nevertheless thematically absent from your analysis, is how do we decide roughly how much blame goes to the colonial powers, companies that continue to have a presence in these countries, and how much blame is self-made on the part of a political elite that mimics the behavior of colonial superpowers to the point where, as with the African National Congress, they often behave in neo-colonial ways. Yes, a great piece of thought there. It's been one of the challenges to apportion blames on both sides and figure out what to do with that blame. In fact, if we frank with ourselves, even if we were to apportion blame half and half, or maybe 75% to 25%, um, clearly, um, it, to me, at, at times I said, um, we've, we've done it. It's, it's, it's going to be meaningless because, and the reason why I'm saying this is, you just mentioned a, a brilliant thinker, Franz Fanon, and Fanon. Uh, as you already know, has produced brilliant work on, on, the, on, the, on the colonization, decolonization. But one of the areas that he's done an incredible job that people have underestimated, and you like that as well, that area, is the psychological elements of colonization and decolonization. And as you know, he was, a, he was in the French army, and he noticed that. And one of the things he said, just to paraphrase him, is that the mind of the colonized uh, person has been so worked out by the oppressor and the, the colonizer so that it is difficult. It's almost like a St- Stockholm syndrome. 
they've got the habits and the education. I mean, for goodness sake, you want to decolonize your country from the French, but you're still speaking the language, which means your frame of work and frame of mind and your mindset is not only colonial, but it's the instrument by which they are really oppressing you. And I think this is where French, this is exactly some of the things French finance said. So apportioning blame, it's probably a good exercise to do, but it really has its role in a certain place. But what is important for us, especially the decolonizers, the the people who want to decolonize themselves from France, is to spend more time on themselves now. And as Biko was saying that, in fact, the mind of the oppressed is a key or the instrument that makes colonization possible, largely, or the oppression possible. Coffee, on the economic part, just to tie a little bow around it, so that we can move to the military, the cultural element, and sure. then talk about relationships specifically with with Russia and Africa continuing to be, as during the Cold War era, a sort of proxy site for contestation between these European powers. Um, is it your contention, and give me very precise examples, even if just one or two, to be illustrative, that besides having massively stolen from Africa if we just put it bluntly, lots of raw materials and use black people on the continent as input in the making of those extractive economies and then taking the jewels literally and figuratively back to Europe. That's obviously historically true. But as we speak right now, are there lots of French companies, multinational companies that continue that kind of behavior? Yes, indeed. And I can give you two of them. The first one is that managed to rebrand itself was called Total Energy, which means Total Energy, which is also uh, prospecting on a large, uh, on the coast of South Africa. And I'm sure you've heard about uh, what they've discovered, I think a huge uh, sort of reserve of oil and gas at the coast of South Africa. They're doing the same thing in Cote d'Ivoire. In fact, there has been, it's just not, not just rumors, but uh, they've discovered a large uh, uh, reserve of oil and gas on the, on the coast of Ivory Coast as well. And they haven't made it uh, known publicly. I'm just break, not breaking it by sharing with you. But what they usually do is much of the, the, the reserve um, and the money and everything around that oil will go to France. That's one, one example. I'm going to come back to the overall element. The second one is Arriva. And Arriva is an energy company as well. And they largely deal with, uh, you know, what's called the the periodical table economies, mainly, you know, the minerals. And and I think it's it's an appropriate terminology to use. And with rare earth and so forth. And one of them is uranium. They are uh, holding up. I would say almost hostage uh, uranium uh, uh, exploitation in Niger. And they're also dealing with uh, uh, Namibia because there's a little bit of uh, uranium in Namibia, as you may know about it. But what is key into what Arriva is doing up in Niger is that you would be shocked to to know that much of the the exploitation or the product of the uranium uh, extraction and the use for electricity and energy that powers the whole France and then largely 
you know, the other uh, parts of French, they're usually called beyond the seas, or in French it's called outre-mer, which means in France. In fact, France, it, people see France as a small country in Europe, but in fact, there is an empire beyond France. You know, Martinique, all other, all other small islands of France is still controlling. So while France is powering uh, its, its nation with great electricity, uranium from, from Niger, guess what? You know, Niamey, which is the capital, and a few cities in, uh, uh, in Niger don't even have electricity. So that tells you the kind of exploitation that is really painful. I mean, the least you want to do if you're exploiting that, besides not even giving them enough uh, 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 revenues from these extractions, uh, you can give them electricity at least. But even worse, I mean, the, the residue of uranium is also destroying the soils up there in Niger. So these are the two examples I can give you quickly. But in the economic sector, the French have managed around, uh, if you want, after the war, uh, to set up a monetary system, which many have called the uh, monetary uh, servitude, which means uh, General de Gaulle, who was the the, the head of that the, the country after uh, war, after the war, Second World War, managed to create this economic system where African nations, at least the former colonies, were subservient economically. To France, and let me give you a few examples. There's a lot more, but let me give you a few examples. Out of what we call the estimated 500 billion US dollars that has just extracted from these countries every year since 1949, I think, right? Um, France, I would estimate, in fact, it's even much higher. All these countries, especially the 14 countries that make the what's called uh, they have a monetary union, includes uh, Ivory Coast, Cameroon, and all these these groups, have to put. They used to put 100 percent of their reserves in foreign, you know, accounts back to the French um, Reserve Bank, this French Central Bank, and the French Central Bank will manage that. Right, Yusuman is still managing it. It's changed a little bit from a hundred percent to now fifty percent. Right, and so when any African country would want that money back to to use it and invest, the French has veto on it to decide why, when, how much, and when you're going to bring this money back. The worst of all, that raises an that raises an obvious question. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Worst of all. They even put an interest rate on it. <laughs> so, which that's, means that's you yes, yes. So, so I mean, it's 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 kind of monetary servitude that is almost unacceptable, and that's the kind of uh, economic, you know, servitude I'm talking about. That's usually important to pay attention to. But here's the question that it raises for me, and I I think about this every time I see that CNN ad that is a modern slavery anti-modern slavery campaign, I'm sure you've seen it on CNN, where some American professor who obviously has got very good intentions says, you know, I've gone over to this country and I see all the kids that are should be in school and they're busy, um, busy looking for cobalt or whatever it might be. Next time you use in New York your phone, uh, be mindful of where certain parts come from and the exploitation. Um, and I think to myself, that's, that's, that's true. Um, but who the hell enables it in those countries? 
all of these countries run by little Jacob Zumas that are there to be bought off by the multinationals from yes. Paris. Yes. I mean, the system is so oiled that on the surface, it is difficult. I remember going back to the, the, the word blame you used. It's so deep that there's about three or four, six degrees relationship that you need to impact before you can figure out who's running those minions and those puppets who are running those countries with an iron fist, being in Burkina Faso or being in Cote d'Ivoire or being in all these countries. So the, the, the front men are playing a game and we all know that they get the support from France because France is still supporting them with the army. Remember those base, military bases and culturally funding everything. And so much so that mm. it is difficult mm. to really um, get them out of there because it's untangled. Exactly. If you were to try to do a coup d'etat, look at what's happening in Mali, a very good case today in Mali. The, the, mm. the, 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 the civil society went on a, on a revolt. They revolted and then the military used that revolt, that discontent to position itself and say, we don't want the French anymore in Mali. But guess what? They've now foiled two coup d'etats. And there's plenty of evidence that who is behind it? You guess it. I don't have to tell. You've, you've beautifully answered what was going to be my next question, which is why are military bases bad? And from what you've just said in the last two minutes, they're fundamentally bad for the citizens and not so much for the kleptocratic political elite. Yes, indeed, because they are used as instruments to keep not only to, to keep track and then also frighten out the, 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 the minions and the front people they have running those countries. But at the same time, they're also used to frighten the, the, the population and say, if you were to revolt, yeah. we're going to deal with you. Very quickly on... On the cultural element, which I'd love to unravel fully in a separate episode, because I suspect there's rich stuff we can talk about there. Beyond language, just hit for me what the other elements are that a fuller discussion would necessitate us drilling down into. I assume that the hangover from colonialism can't just be, oh my God, I speak fluent French. And there must be more to the cultural grammar. Yes. I mean, I know you, a, uh, what's the term? Uh, you use this brilliant, beautiful terminology. Uh, you're a man of letters and <laughs> of communication and media. And language matters a lot because it is not only the channel that helps to create decent meaning, but also gives us an identity, and that identity helped to also build sovereignty. And so that language, it is so powerful that when you speak it, um, it, it it's not that you own it, but it owns you largely, right? Because of the, 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 the complexities and so forth. But beside the language, there's also the fact that the language is also framed, the mindsets of, of, of people who speak French or now they call themselves Francophone. And they're the part of this whole big thing called the Francophony, uh, a little bit like the British Commonwealth. And there's a sense of a sense of pride and identity being part of that huge group of, uh, of people who belong to the language, right? But next to that, the language also comes into uh, one of my favorite areas now, 
about the culinary, if you want, enslavement of most people. You know, I'm eating uh, French soup. I'm eating caviar. <laughs> I'm eating. You see what I mean? And all these are so important that, in fact, uh, the, the 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 food the the food diets that is French based designs your tastes, right? And as you know, uh, most people are called themselves bourgeois. Are you telling me you don't like a French loaf or croissant? Now you're talking French croissant or loaf of bread. They design and they put you in a category, social category that makes you a bourgeois, you know, bought French mm. guy and so forth. And did you know that? Um, in the, in Africa, the country that consum- consumes more champagne, do you, do you know which country is it is? Nigeria or South Africa? Nigeria, probably. <laughs> Nigeria. I mean, for goodness sake, Nigeria consuming more champagne than any other former French colonies. Nigeria, uh, South Africa does also consume a lot of uh, uh, French uh, champagne. So they're interesting connections then, isn't it? Because yes. it seems to me that the cultural domination has got its own self-standing psychosocial dimension that goes back to your Fanonian point about the psychological um, domination yes. that we also need to reverse and undo. But it's also underpinned, as all these things are, like the military element, with economics because the cultural element is not just about making you feel fundamentally in your self-identity francophone, but that that's going to be underpinned by a whole cultural economy that also benefits the colonial power. Yes, let me, I mean, you put it so right. Let me give you a simple example. Cote d'Ivoire is, and has been with uh, Ghana, the first producer of cocoa in the world. Now, the value chain of cocoa, as you know, upstream, you get the raw cocoa, go to the field and so forth. You get that that little, little bunch thing, you know. And then downstream, there's now the the, the production of luxury chocolate, right? <laughs> All of that. But guess who it benefits most, right? Um, the French. So you, you have, you, I'm sure you've never heard about uh, Ivorian chocolate, but you can hear French chocolate, Belgium chocolate, Swiss yeah. chocolate, and so yeah. forth. So that is that the kind of economic servitudes that right. it tells you in the value chain mm. of those extractive approaches to France towards most of these Frank, so-called Francophone African countries. Coffee, this brings me to a very important question in relation to one of your, to the, the, the last piece of yours that, I, that I'd read. What is the major strategic geopolitical beef between the French and Russian presidents? And why should Africans care? Mm. Very important. I think this nexus. France, after having been on the continent for more than a hundred years or so, uh, in Ivory Coast, they were there. I mean, they came to Africa largely around 1843, but with uh, 1844 and 1984 and 1985 um, of the Berlin Conference, and then the scramble for Africa, and then decolonization, France is still being here. Usually people say that Africa at least Francophone, so-called Francophone Africa, is a backyard of France. And that backyard hasn't been managed properly. And I must say that France has really lost a great deal of not only reputation, but being able to build those places so that there is a sense that, you know, this sort of colonial partnership, although terrible, 
can still create a hope for Africans to live. So the France has left a huge economic, political, uh, you know, technological, you know, all sorts of gaps that are now being filled the past 15 years by many global players, of which are Russia, China, Turkey, uh, the Middle East uh, countries like uh, Qatar and so forth. But to go back to your question, Russia has been making huge, I mean, the, the Federation of uh, Russian uh, of Russian Republic has been making a huge inroad in Africa. And uh, for the, pa- the, the past about 10 years or so, roughly, but since the 1991, the creation of the Federation of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russians have started to build up um, steadily, mainly using security and defense, right, as an entry point to really say to African countries, we can help you put together a security package and a defense so that you can defend yourself against things like terrorism. I mean, you've, you, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, in the Sahel, terrorism in the Sahel, also in Mozambique with uh, different groups of terrorists and so forth, but also in Central Africa. And it's going really well. And the reason why it's going really well is that France, after having been there for so long, hasn't been able to quell these. And then one example, two examples are in Mali. After eight to nine years, terrorism has gone up rather than just decline in the Sahel. Okay. After the mess in Libya, where France and, and, and Croatia NATO could bomb Syria, uh, Libya and kill everybody, uh, the yeah. uh, armed groups went down south. But Russia is playing a powerful role because Russia has seen the gap. And so in my piece, I didn't want to compare very much, you know, both Russia in terms of GDP or size of the country. It's easier. You can find that on on Wikipedia and any other places. But what is the most important in that geopolitics? It appears that Russia is much stronger. Not only Russia has got more than 6,000 nuclear heads, but Russian defense and security industry is perhaps one of the most powerful, although both countries are nuclear and also have veto power at the United Nations Security, uh, United Nations Security yeah. Council. The Russians are a bit more aggressive. Your absolutely riveting narration of political fault lines and political history and real politics has been descriptive and analytical in this conversation. I want to end off by asking a question that invites you to comment. You have a keen interest in future studies. What should our posture be? And maybe it will differ from country to country. I shouldn't treat Africa as a country. Um, But (laughs) I'll phrase it loosely. What should Africa's geopolitical posture be towards Russia? Given that all of these countries, whether we talk Great Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, they all had nefarious interests in our continent. They never came here for any bona fide reason. And surely, when we talk about China in our next episode, I think it's clear we're going to do that, whether we talk about Russia, However interesting it is in an intellectual seminar at the University of Joburg to get students to debate, you know, who is morally more rapacious, the Chinese or the Americans, from our point of view as Africans, 
we should surely be skeptical of the whole lot, including Russia. Mm. Now that, that piggybacks very well on the question you asked about why should Africans care? And, you know, bundling that question, the answer to that question to what you just asked now, we should care because, I mean, this continent is literally the last business frontier. You know, it's large. It's about 30 million square kilometers. It's larger than Russia, about 17 million friends. That's about, if you combine friends, the metropolitan and then the empire islands, about a million or so. The wealth of the uh, periodic table economy on this continent is just almost in parallel to any other places. And when we're talking about the relevant background with Ukraine on the energy, uh, energy side, um, agriculture, the continent is extraordinarily fertile, although we have a Sahara and so forth. I mean, everything grows everywhere. You've got minerals everywhere. I mean, if you were to take South Africa, there is no reason why this content country should be poor. Well, hopefully we'll talk about it later. It is made poor. Most African countries are made poor. And they're made poor by both in, in, in uh, the front men who are running those countries, but also from outside uh, groups that are supporting mm. them. And so the geopolitical reason for the re why Africans should care is exactly about the power that Africa is sitting on, both on the natural mm. resources, but also an incredibly innovative group of human beings that's untapped. The youth specifically, I mean, it's just almost unacceptable and criminal to see that um, mm. more than uh, uh, two thirds of the African population, I would say large, 75% younger, are doing almost nothing and employment is very high. But others have found out that this continent is a, is a repository of wealth, power and everything else. So in the geopolitics of the coming worlds and the risk ramble world that we call poly, uh, if you want a polylateral world, you know, or people also call mm -hmm. it multilateral world, uh, Russia, China, Turkey, and others are now understanding that if, if they have a piece of the action in the future, it must be here. Yeah. So the best case scenario is Africa. Hmm. I'm going to leave it here. I sometimes... Don't make good on my promises to come back to topics. So we'll hold ourselves accountable. We'll talk about China as a self-standing topic. We'll also talk about something that has come up for me as you talk about the last frontier of business. And I think that warrants a discussion too of the terms on which we must engage Russia, France, and China, and not because of our psychological brutalizing realities that we experienced during colonialism, into these conversations as beggars, but as a wealthy region, both in terms of, as you correctly say, the human capital that we have, our capacity for innovation, and then all the raw materials and other goods that the rest of the world, like us, need in the making of modern economies. And it just seems to me at the level of attitude that we sometimes engage in these fora when we go to G8, G9, G50, where you go to Geneva, <laughs> we often go there not quite with our confidence intact 
as if we aren't equal partners to the conversation. But a key quick last message from you, Coffee, uh, is that we need to recognize that if we are indeed the last frontier for business, that that's a powerful bargaining chip geopolitically. Yes, indeed. I mean, I wouldn't have uh, summarized it any better. You've put the, the point on the I and the T and so forth. And most important, I'll come back to what you're talking about, that word begging. Um, you know, it, the Chinese have a very, uh, the Chinese philosopher has this uh, very interesting uh, metaphor uh, about uh, Africa. He said, you know, it's a beggar with a begging bowl, with a, with a, a golden begging bowl. <laughs> Right, yeah. so a beggar with a golden begging bowl who mm. doesn't know that it, it, it has a, a bowl that's golden. I mm. mean that it can convert it into something and stop begging. <laughs> so that's where I'm going to end it, and, and I think you captured Beautiful. it very well. Coffee Kwaku, love speaking to you, and I'm excited to have more of these conversations and expand, particularly my South African listeners and readers' interest beyond what is happening in the Nayiwa trial or at Pala Pala. Thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. All the Cheers. best. You saved us. Cheers. Cheers.